Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair, William Thackeray's deliciously satirical take on a money-mad society set against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars. We're delighted you're back for another novel in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads William Thackeray's Vanity Fair. Chapter 5. Dobbin of Ours Cuff's fight with Dobbin and the unexpected result will long be remembered by every man who was educated at Dr. Swishtail's famous school. Dobbin, who used to be called Hey-Ho Dobbin, Gee-Up Dobbin, and other contemptuous names, was the quietest, clumsiest, and, it seems, the dullest of Dr. Swishtail's pupils. His father was a grocer, and it was rumored that his board and schooling were paid for in goods, not money. He stood there in his scraggy corduroys and jacket, with his great bones bursting through the seams, as the representative of so many pounds of tea, candles, sugar, soap, and other commodities. A dreadful day it was for young Dobbin when one of the boys espied the cart of Dobbin and Rudge, grocers and oilmen, at the doctor's door, unloading its wares. Young Dobbin had no peace after that. The jokes were merciless. Hello, Dobbin, one wag would say. Here's good news in the paper. Sugar is riz, my boy. Another would ask, if a pound of mutton candles cost sevenpence halfpenny, how much must Dobbin cost? And a roar would follow from the circle of young knaves, who rightly considered that the selling of goods is a shameful practice, deserving the scorn of all real gentlemen. "'Your father's only a merchant, Osborne,' Dobbin said in private to the little boy who had brought down the storm upon him, at which the latter replied haughtily, "'My father's a gentleman and keeps his carriage.' And William Dobbin retreated to a remote outhouse in the playground in the bitterest sadness and woe. Who does not recollect similar hours of childhood grief?' Who feels injustice so acutely as a generous boy? And how many of those gentle souls do you degrade and torture for the sake of a little arithmetic and dog Latin? Now, William Dobbin, from his inability to learn Latin, was compelled to remain in the lower form with little pink-faced fellows, a giant amongst them with his downcast, stupefied look, his dog-eared primer, and his corduroys. All made fun of him. They cut his bed-strings. They left buckets for him to break his shins over. They sent him parcels, which, when opened, were found to contain the paternal soap and candles. Dobbin bore everything patiently, and was entirely dumb and miserable. Cuff, on the contrary, was the great chief and dandy of the Swishtail School. He smuggled wine in. He fought the town boys. Ponies were brought for him to ride home on Saturdays. He had a gold repeater watch and took snuff like the doctor. He had been to the opera and could knock you off forty Latin verses in an hour. What couldn't he do? They said even the doctor himself was afraid of him. 
Cuff, the unquestioned king of the school, ruled over his subjects and bullied them with splendid superiority. They blacked his shoes, toasted his bread, and gave him balls at cricket during whole summer afternoons. Dobbin, or Figs, was the fellow whom he despised most, although he scarcely ever condescended to speak to him. One day, Dobbin, alone in the schoolroom, was blundering over a letter home when Cuff, entering, bade him go upon some errand. "'I can't,' said Dobbin. "'I want to finish my letter.' "'You can't,' says Mr. Cuff, picking up the letter, in which many words were scratched out or misspelt, with much labor and tears, for the poor fellow was writing to his mother, who was fond of him, although she was a grocer's wife. "'Can't you write to old Mother Fix tomorrow?' "'Don't call names,' Dobbin said, getting off the bench, very nervous. "'Well, sir, will you go?' crowed the cock of the school. "'Put down the letter.' Dobbin replied. No gentleman readeth letters. Well, now will you go? says the other. No, I won't. Don't strike me or I'll smash you, roars out Dobbin, looking so wicked that Mr. Cuff paused, put his hands into his pockets, and walked away with a sneer. But he never meddled with the grocer's boy after that, though he spoke of Dobbin with contempt behind his back. Some time after this, it happened that Mr. Cuff, on a sunshiny afternoon, was near poor William Dobbin, who was lying under a tree in the playground, looking at a favorite copy of the Arabian Nights while the rest of the school were pursuing various sports. He was quite lonely and almost happy. He had for once forgotten the world and was away with Sinbad the sailor when the shrill cries of a little fellow weeping woke up his pleasant reverie. Looking up, he saw Cuff belaboring a little boy. It was the lad who had told about the grocer's cart, but Dobbin bore no malice towards the young and small. "'How dare you break the bottle, sir?' says Cuff to the urchin, swinging a cricket stump at him. The boy had been instructed to get over the playground wall, to run a quarter of a mile, to purchase a pint of rum shrub on credit, to brave all the doctor's spies, and clamber back into the playground again. His foot had slipped, and the bottle was broken, and he stood, guilty and trembling. "'How dare you!' says Cuff. "'You blundering little thief! You drank it, and now you pretend to have broken the bottle?' "'Hold out your hand, sir!' Down came the stump with a great thump on the child's hand. A moan followed. Dobbin looked up. The rock whisked away Sinbad the sailor out of sight, and there was everyday life. A big boy beating a little one without cause. "'Hold out your other hand, sir!' roars Cuff to his little schoolfellow, whose face was distorted with pain. Dobbin quivered and gathered himself up. "'Take that, you little devil!' cried Mr. Cuff. Down came the stump again, and Dobbin sprang up and screamed out, "'Hold off, Cuff! Don't bully that child any more, or I'll—' "'Or you'll what?' Cuff asked in amazement. "'Hold out your hand, you little beast! I'll give you the worst thrashing you ever had in your life,' Dobbin said. 
and little Osborne, gasping and in tears, looked up with wonder at seeing this amazing champion put up suddenly to defend him. Cuff's astonishment was scarcely less. After school, said he, after a pause. As you please, Dobbin said. You must be my bottle holder, Osborne. Well, if you like, little Osborne replied, for he was rather ashamed of his champion. Yes, when the hour of battle came, he was almost ashamed to say, Go it, figs! And not a single other boy uttered that cry for the first two or three rounds of the fight. At its start, Cuff, with a contemptuous smile on his face, planted blows upon his adversary and floored him three times running. At each fall, there was a cheer. What a beating I shall get when it's over, young Osborne thought, picking up his man. You'd best give in, he said to Dobbin. It's only a thrashing, Figs, and you know I'm used to it. But Figs, whose limbs were in a quiver, and whose nostrils were breathing rage, put his little bottle holder aside and went in for a fourth time. As he did not know how to parry Cuff's blows, Figs now determined that he would start with a charge on his own part, and accordingly, being a left-handed man, hit out a couple of times with all his might, once at Mr. Cuff's left eye, and once on his beautiful Roman nose. Cuff went down this time, to the astonishment of all. "'Well hit by Jove!' says little Osborne, with the air of a connoisseur clapping his man on the back. Give it him with the left, Figs, my boy. Figs left made terrific play during all the rest of the fight. Cuff went down every time. At the sixth round, there were almost as many fellows shouting for Figs as for Cuff. At the twelfth round, Cuff lost all presence of mind and power of attack. Figs, on the contrary, was calm and pale, his eyes shining open, and a great cut on his underlip bleeding profusely. He had a fierce and ghastly air, which struck terror into many spectators. Nevertheless, Cuff prepared to close for the thirteenth time, coming up full of pluck, but reeling and groggy. The fig merchant put in his left on his adversary's nose and sent him down for the last time. I think that will do, Fig said, as his opponent dropped neatly on the green and did not stand up again. And now all the boys set up such a shout for Figs as brought Dr. Swishtail out of his study, curious to know the cause of the uproar. He threatened to flog Figs, but Cuff, who had come to himself by this time, stood up and said, It's my fault, sir, not Dobbins. I was bullying a little boy, and he served me right. By this magnanimous speech, he not only saved his conqueror a whipping, but got back all his ascendancy over the boys. Young Osborne wrote home to his parents. Dear Mamma, I hope you are quite well. I should be much obliged to you to send me a cake and five shillings. There has been a fight here between Cough and Dobbin. Cough, you know, was the cock of the school. They fought thirteen rounds, and Dobbin licked. The fight was about me. Cuff was licking me for breaking a bottle of milk, and Figs wouldn't stand it. We call him Figs because his father is a grocer. 
I think, as he fought for me, you ought to buy your tea and sugar at his father's. Cuff goes home every Saturday, but can't this week, because he has two black eyes. He has a white pony to come and fetch him, and a groom on a bay mare. I wish my papa would let me have a pony. And I am your dutiful son, George Sedley Osborne. P.S. Give my love to little Emmy. I am cutting her out a coach in Carbord. Oh, please, not a seed cake, but a plum cake. After Dobbin's victory, his character rose greatly in the eyes of all his schoolfellows, and the name of Figs became as respectable a nickname as any other in the school. After all, it's not his fault that his father's a grocer, George Osborne said, who, though a little chap, was popular. And Dobbin's spirit rose with his altered circumstances. He made wonderful advances in learning. The superb Cuff himself helped him with his Latin verses, coached him in play hours, and carried him triumphantly into the middle form. It was discovered that although dull at classical learning, at mathematics he was uncommonly quick. He passed third in algebra and got presented with a prize book before the whole school. All the boys clapped, despite his blushes and stumbles, and you should have seen his mother's face. Old Dobbin, his father, who now respected him for the first time, gave him two guineas, most of which he spent in tuck for the school, and he came back in a tailcoat after the holidays. Dobbin modestly attributed all his good fortune to little George Osborne, to whom he vowed love and affection. He was his valet, his dog, his man Friday. He believed Osborne to be perfect in every way, the handsomest, the bravest, the cleverest, the most generous of boys. He shared his money with him, bought him presents of knives, pencil cases, toffee, and books, gifts which George received very graciously, as became his superior merit. So Lieutenant Osborne, arriving at Russell Square on the day of the Vauxhall party, said to the ladies, "'Mrs. Sedley, ma'am, I've asked Dobbin of ours to come and dine here and go with us to Vauxhall. I met him at the Bedford and told him that we were all going out, and that Mrs. Sedley had forgiven his breaking the punch bowl at the child's party. Don't you remember the catastrophe, ma'am, seven years ago?' "'Over Mrs. Flamingo's crimson silk gown,' said good-natured Mrs. Sedley. "'What a gawky! And his sisters are not much more graceful. Lady Dobbin was at Highbury last night with three of them. Oh, such figures, my dears!' "'His father the alderman's very rich, isn't he?' Osborne asked archly. "'Don't you think one of the daughters would be a good match for me, ma'am? "'You foolish creature! Who would take you, I should like to know, with your yellow face? "'Mine a yellow face? <laughs> Wait till you see Dobbin. "'He had the yellow fever three times, twice at Nassau and once at St. Kitts. "'Well, yours is quite yellow enough for us, isn't it, Emmy?' Mrs. Sedley said. "'Amelia only smiled and blushed.' Looking at George Osborne's pale, interesting face and black, curling, shining whiskers, she thought that there never was such a face or such a hero. "'I don't care about Captain Dobbin's complexion,' she said. 
or his awkwardness, I shall always like him, her reason being that he was the friend and champion of George. There's not a finer fellow in the army, Osborne said, nor a better officer, although he is not an Adonis, certainly. And he looked towards the mirror and caught Miss Sharp's eye fixed keenly upon him, at which he blushed a little. Rebecca thought, Ah, mon beau monsieur, I think I have your measure. That evening, when Amelia came tripping into the drawing-room in a white muslin frock, singing like a lark, and as fresh as a rose, a very tall, ungainly gentleman, with large hands and feet and large ears, set off by a closely cropped head of black hair, and wearing the hideous military frog coat and cocked hat of those times, advanced to meet her with a clumsy bow. This was Captain William Dobbin. "'returned from the West Indies, "'where his regiment had been ordered "'whilst many of his gallant comrades "'were reaping glory in the peninsula. "'He had arrived with a knock so timid "'that it was inaudible to the ladies upstairs, "'otherwise Amelia would never have come singing into the room. "'As it was, the sweet, fresh little voice "'went right into the captain's heart and nestled there. "'When she held out her hand for him to shake, "'he paused and thought, are you the little maid I remember in the pink frock, the night I upset the punch bowl? The little girl that George Osborne said should marry him? What a prize the rogue has got! All this he thought before he took Amelia's hand. His history since he left school has, I think, been indicated sufficiently for an ingenious reader. His father, the despised grocer, became Alderman Dobbin, and was then knighted. The son had entered the army, and young Osborne followed in the same regiment. They had served in the West Indies and in Canada. Dobbin's attachment to George Osborne was as warm now as it had been at school. So these worthy people sat down to dinner, and talked about war and glory and Boney and Lord Wellington and the last military gazette. The two gallant young men longed to see their own names in that glorious list, and cursed their unlucky fate in belonging to a regiment which had been away from battle. Miss Sharp kindled with this exciting talk, but Miss Sedley trembled and grew quite faint. Mr. Joss told several of his tiger-hunting stories, finished with the one about Miss Cutler and Lance the surgeon— "'helped Rebecca to everything on the table, "'and gobbled and drank a great deal. "'He sprang to open the door for the ladies when they retired, "'and, returning to the table, "'filled bumper after bumper of claret, "'which he swallowed with nervous rapidity. "'He's priming himself,' Osborne whispered to Dobbin, "'and at length the hour and the carriage arrived for Vauxhall.' Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.